Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker of The Week. Linda Chavez is off this week, but we are fortunate to have Jonathan V. Last, editor of thebulwark.com, joining us in her place. And we are delighted to welcome as our guest this week, George F. Will, columnist, author, and crazed football fan. Did I get that right, George? No. <laughs> I think football's a mistake. <laughs> it combines the two worst features of American life, which is violence punctuated by committee meetings called huddles. <laughs> Right. And, and and people watch for three hours and there's something like 15 minutes of actual action. There's no, never that many. Seriously. <laughs> it's, more, it's more like seven minutes. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. We are here to the, for the last pre-election podcast. Uh, 75 million Americans have already voted. That which is about a third of registered voters and also represents 56% of the 2016 vote. And uh, I thought we could pull back the lens a little bit and discuss uh, at, from this distance, now that it's nearly over, um, what this election has been about. Uh, because uh, ideally, if you have an unpopular um incumbent, you try to make the election not a referendum on yourself, but a choice. Um, Jonathan Last, um, why wasn't the president able to make this about Joe Biden? This is such a, a weird election thematically, because it's the first election I can think about, which is a change election that's actually about restoration. Nor normally, the idea of restoration doesn't go over very well with with elector with the electorate but in this case what happened is we had a candidate who promised to burn everything down and some small non-polarity of the country voted for that and uh, the ensuing four years he kept his promise he has burnt everything down and now the country does not like it and joe biden's entire candidacy has explicitly been about restoration. And he said it over and over and over. I'm going to go back to the way things were four years ago where you know things were better and Americans were nicer to each other. And it was a very unorthodox uh, campaign pitch. This is one of the reasons why I think a lot of professionals in the Democratic primary did not believe that he could he could be the nominee. They thought that it would have to be forward-looking, not backward-looking. He needed to have some new agenda. Uh, but I, as somebody who was very bullish on Biden's chances the entire time, happened to agree with him. I thought it was a very smart play and probably the right play for the electorate in this moment. And I think that's where we are. George, do you agree with that? And uh, do you think that uh, part of the reason Trump wasn't able to change the subject is because he can never change the subject off of himself? Well, that's partly it. I would say this, I can tell you what this is about in two words. One is exhaustion and the other is embarrassment. And people are exhausted by being embarrassed for their country 24 hours a day. They're exhausted by the 
the ubiquity of the modern presidency that has been with us for too long, but has become insufferable uh, under the 45th president. So I think uh, I, I agree with that this is restoration, but it's it's restoration driven by a kind of desperation of people who are just uh, at their wit's end. Uh, before we began this podcast, Bill, I um, was doing what I should what I'm told by all the mental health experts I ought not to do, uh, but I do it anyway, which is you know sort of feverishly checking the uh, polling from swing states, <laughs> and. Uh, and in light of everything, it is amazing, is it not, that it is still very close in a number of states within the margin of error in Pennsylvania and Michigan. And, well, maybe not Michigan, but uh, Florida for sure, Pennsylvania and a few other places, North Carolina. Um, so do, do you have any um, explanation beyond, you know, what, what is your explanation for those who are not exhausted and embarrassed? <clears throat> well, uh, I think that uh, Donald Trump is a man who arouses intense passions for and against. And he is also a president who has governed very much as he promised he would. And for the people who support him, that's not a trivial, trivial matter. Certainly, certainly the social conservatives are satisfied with his handling of judicial appointments and his and his embrace of of movements that other Republican presidents have kept their distance from to some extent. I was surprised to learn that no sitting Republican president had actually addressed major uh right to life meetings in person, not even Ronald Reagan. Uh, and the, the economic conservatives are satisfied with uh, the tax cuts and deregulation. Uh, you know, economic populists uh, believe that he has kept his promises on issues of trade and immigration and an America first foreign policy. Uh, and they note with interest that he hasn't started any new wars. So the people who, are f who were for him four years ago, by and large, are still for him because although the president has not you know, fulfilled his promise to be more presidential once he stopped campaigning and was sworn in, uh, on every other front, he's delivered pretty much as promised, and uh, the people who the people who wanted what he was promising are not dissatisfied. Damon, I um, I find the argument that you sometimes hear frequently here among Trump defenders that um, he is the authentic voice of the working class, and that if you criticize Trump, you are somehow disrespecting people who didn't attend college or who work with their hands. And I find this very condescending to people who fit into those categories, right? I mean, you don't have to have a college degree to find lying and and fraud offensive or or to be um, or to be offended by um, by by mocking the handicapped or women. Um, so 
Isn't that kind of a, a form of, of condescension on the part of elites that they are always so exercised about? Well, sure. Although I, I do think, I mean, something real is going on. I agree that it isn't simply a class-based thing. And I sort of wince whenever I hear Trump defending intellectuals uh, sort of, you know, a rail against elites, which, you know, I, I thought conservatives actually cared about having virtuous elites and good elites, uh, not attacking all elites as such. Um, but I think when you look at these huge rallies that he's still, Trump, despite the pandemic, despite the low opinion polls, is still able to draw thousands of people to come out uh, of their homes, often on cold nights and even getting stranded by the side of the road, as they did in Omaha, Nebraska a few nights ago. Um, they still come out and seem to love the guy. He's His message certainly is something, some kind of a class-based, but much more of a cultural kind of cry of uh, the id, a kind of anger against a perceived uh, slight by by their quote-unquote betters, uh, people who are viewed as being in the commanding heights and control of certain institutions like the media, universities, and other and other things, uh, and then quote unquote in Washington. Um, so I agree that it isn't simply a kind of economic thing that like all working class people love Trump, but a certain kind of both working class and middle class, middle of the country, maybe Midwesterners, non-urban uh, non-inner ring suburb Americans find something resonating with his his rude, obnoxious, ignorant diatribes. And, and it's something real that uh, we're going to have to keep contending with after he's gone, because uh, there are going to be Republicans trying to tap into that. George, you've spent um, many decades uh, pointing out some of the excesses of the left. Um, but uh, doesn't it strike you, do, do you agree that uh, the response that says that the answer to left-wing extremism or excesses is to embrace Trump, um, that that doesn't that just run the risk of driving the left even crazier? Yes, and it's the law of the excluded middle. There actually is a middle out there, uh, and that doesn't mean squishy, uh, banana-ish, moderation of sorts. It, 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 there's perfectly principled conservatism that, that's yet to be heard from. I think the results next Tuesday, which I expect as well as hope to be a resounding Biden victory, I think the results will be in their way more dismaying than the results in 2016. In 2016, uh, Trump was running against an unappealing candidate. In 2016, he wasn't to most people a known commodity. More alarming is the fact that next Tuesday, more than four in 10 Americans are going to say, we've watched this stuff for four years and we want four more years of it. That is an astonishing and alarming phenomenon, but uh, we better be braced for it. This, about him, by the way, governing as he promised, yes, with an asterisk. Uh, not yes, in the sense that there, a wall has been built and paid for by Mexico, and not because the national debt has been reduced or any of these other things. What he's done, uh, he's done in policy pretty much what any Republican would have done. 
taken judges from lists vetted by the Federalist Society, cut corporate income taxes. Good Lord, Barack Obama wanted to cut the corporate income tax. What uh, Mr. Trump has brought, and this is where he has governed as he promised, and this is why all the chastising Trump for breaking norms is so pointless. He promised to do that. He promised to break the rules, and he promised to be sort of in your face, and he's delivered. Hey, Jonathan, uh, George is singing your song there about the dismaying fact that people have looked this in the face. They have lived it for four years. They watched that first debate where the president was indistinguishable from a gorilla. And they said, yep, that's what we want. And you've been saying this. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was... Uh... I would like to see the world in the way that Bill Galston does, where the the calculations being made by Republican voters this time around are rational policy based formulations. I just I, I just don't happen to believe that. I think what is going on is that they respond to the Trump cultural insurgency. And this is what they're they you know, in conservative elite world, they say, oh, the policies are great. It's just the tweets that are the problem. And I Mm -hmm. think at the level of voters, the policies are beside the fact the tweets are why they're there. And we're going to test this this proposition over the next four years, as you see people like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, who are going to try to put together a policy based version of Trumpism without Trump. And they are going to be countered by someone, and it's not clear entirely who that person is. It could be Donald Trump himself. It could be Donald Trump Jr. It could be Tucker Carlson. But somebody who who instead of that just brings the Trump norm breaking back to the table. And I have to say, I I would be I would be willing to go and place a a large money line bet on the future that the next Republican nominee will not be somebody who just recreates the, the right policy matrix on populism. Damon, let's switch our uh, attention now to the Democratic Party because, um, you know, the it's it's interesting. The, the, the sort of desperate Republicans are trying to say that, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party is promising open borders. They're going to have MS-13 move into your next door neighbor's house and they're going to you know, bring socialism, Venezuelan style socialism down on our heads, so forth. Um, but but the Democratic Party, it seems to me, first of all, in choosing Joe Biden, they chose about the most institutionalist centrist candidate on offer in, in 2020. Um, and if you look at how they won the House in 2018, Again, they didn't go for the extremes. They ran people like Abigail Spanberger and Alyssa Slotkin and Jared Golden. These are Mikey Sherrill. These are people who are, you know, pretty centrist in their politics. A lot of them have military experience. Frankly, if you if you had blindfolded me in in 2010 and said these are going to be candidates for Congress in in 2018, I would have thought they were all Republicans. Um, so, um, so I'd like you to just dilate for a minute, as Bill Buckley used to say, on uh, whether the um, whether the Democratic Party is likely to be moving in a more reasonable centrist direction, despite all the talk about AOC and so forth. 
Well, um, it, it, part of this is going to depend on how well Biden does next week. If he wins and he wins big, decisively, maybe flipping some states from, from red to blue or purple to blue. If he brings in solidly Arizona, for instance, if Georgia flips, let alone if Texas does, if those kinds of things happen, then he will have a window to try to actually govern sort of like a, a national, uh, like a, a kind of national consensus a politician would in a parliamentary system, where he's essentially saying, we, the Democrats, are now the center and left party with the, the, the Trump party having become the rump party, you know, lop off the T. And we're, we're the kind of center of the country. And he'll have some time to try to accomplish that. I think Bill on some previous shows has talked about some of the hopes of the Biden people to try to govern like that right out of the gate, leading with some policies on things like, of course, responding to the pandemic, but also things like infrastructure and certain institutional um, initiatives that could pick up some support from more moderate Republicans. So if that happens, then, uh, then, you know, we're off and that is what we will see with AOC and, and the left part of the party sort of pushed to the back bench and, and just observing. Um, but that will only be a window for a limited amount of time. And it will depend to some extent on whether Biden can get some Republicans to come across the aisle to work with him. If, if, uh, you know, if, especially if, um, the Republicans keep control of the Senate, but even if they're in in a narrow uh, minority, you know, if if McConnell's still in charge and he he says no way, we have to make this guy be a failure so that we can then win the decisive next victory, which has been the cycle we've been in now for a long time, then uh, that won't last long. And as Biden looks weaker, the left is going to be out for blood, and there's going to be a big fight, and we don't know how that fight is going to play out. I do. Think think that of a party in which AOC and the left is really the face of the party is not going to be able to hold the presidency in this country. So um, uh, I, I think we have a lot of very interesting questions ahead of us. Uh, Bill, the um, in addition to um, the reign of Hugo Chavez that uh, the Republicans say they're trying to protect us from, um, they they also say um, basically the, their their other tactic here is let's not count the votes. Um, <laughs> they're they're trying to limit the the number of places you can drop a ballot off in the in the state of Texas. Uh, they are in court all over the country trying to challenge uh, mail in ballots. Um, do you foresee a huge legal battle after Tuesday? Uh, as I think you know, Mona, I've been worrying about this for a long time. Uh, and we could see the 2000 election on steroids if we're unlucky. Uh, that said, uh, the courts have resolved many, though not all, of the rules disputes in advance of the election, which I think is good news. Uh, another piece of good news is that it's entirely possible, I'm not sure what adds to put on it, what odds rather to put on it, that we will know the outcome of the presidential election at the normal time. 
uh, because a number of swing states start counting ballots, uh, start processing mail-in ballots early. Uh, Florida reported very early in 2016, and nothing much has changed since. There's a greater volume of mail-in ballots, of course. But uh, still, most people are predicting that we'll know the outcome in Florida before midnight. And if Joe Biden wins Florida, he's the next president of the United States, and the rest is noise. Uh, can I can I interrupt for one quick second to clarify something, Bill? Um, yes. You 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 mentioned processing votes. Is it correct to say that when a state processes ballots, what they do is they open the they check the envelope for the signatures, they open it, they smooth it out, they get it ready to be counted, right? That's that's what's meant by processing. That's exactly right. I'm sorry I didn't make make that clear, but what you just correctly called processing is the most time-consuming part right. of counting mail-in ballots. Once they're ready to be sent through the machine, that's the fast part. Now, mm-hmm. the, volu- the volume is astonishing this year, and there's no question about the fact that we're going to smash through all previous records. I think we're going to smash through records on just about everything, not just mail-in ballots, but uh, votes as a whole. I'm now seeing estimates north of 160 million, uh, up from wow. 100, up from 138 in in 2016. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, the share of votes already cast as as a percentage of the total 2016 vote is astonishingly high. Uh, by the end of this week. More early votes will have been recorded in the state of Texas than were cast in the state of Texas uh, in the 2016 election. That's even <laughs> that that that's well in advance of election day. So this is big, uh, and uh, and so the opportunity for a disastrous conflict is there. Uh, so is the opportunity for a surprise on the upside uh, with a reasonably clean and decisive count, perhaps even on election night. Uh, I, I have heard that the secretaries of state of the blue wall states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, and Wisconsin, uh, were jointly predicting that their count will be finished by Friday after election day. So the danger, it seems to me, is that the president will continue his effort to delegitimize mail-in ballots as a class and persuade a lot of people uh, that the results, whatever they are, are not to be trusted for that reason. Yeah, JVL, I think you pointed out in one of your newsletters that something like 80% 80% or maybe more of uh, of voters on both sides think that their candidate is going to win. Um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be, somebody's going to be very surprised uh, when this is over. It's, it's quite dangerous, isn't it? Uh, yeah. To, to have 80% of both sides saying that they they believe they're going to win, and then on one side having the city sitting president of the United States, the commander in chief, uh, 
being very coy about whether or not he will commit to a peaceful transfer of power, saying that uh, the election is being rigged and is fraudulent and all of these ballots need to be thrown out. It's just very dangerous territory. And right. if if we are lucky, goodness knows we have not been lucky in a long time. Uh, <laughs> if we are lucky, then we will know quickly. I would just point out to people who who are, want to put together a cheat sheet, the the one thing to look at early, uh, and this is not my own, I'm, I'm stealing from the great Dave Wasserman uh, of Cook. He says to watch Sumter County in Florida. Uh, Sumter County will have by seven o'clock in the evening on election night, Sumter County will report about 80,000 votes that they got from, from early voters. That is a heavily Trump county, but a pretty representative if Trump is winning any less than 65% of those votes, the early votes there, it means that he is in very, very deep trouble, both both statewide in Florida and then by extension for, for everything. So it is possible if it is a blowout. Yeah. And because, again, this is something to keep in mind for people. Joe Biden is going to get more votes for president than any person to ever run for the job. Yeah, uh, which is really something. And the the very idea that we could be up in the air about whether or not the guy who is going to, by a wide margin, get more votes than anyone else ever, winds up being elected president of the United States is itself, again, it's just a, a very dangerous thing. I, I don't mean to relitigate the idea of the Electoral College, but when you put this big stew together, it's one of the factors that I think leads us towards the possibility of having real fights about legitimacy and, and just dangerous circumstances. Uh, one follow-up about uh, Sumter County. Um, is it the case that you can make a judgment based on the mail-in ballots? Since we know from polling that such a disproportionate share of Trump voters have said that they plan to vote in person, and and you know, likewise, Biden voters said they plan to vote absentee or mail-in. So, wouldn't that suggest that we discount the mail-in uh, results at least you know, until we hear from the walk-ins? Well, the the difference is that in Sumter County, they have they're going to wind up having 75 or 80 percent probably of all registered voters already having voted by mail. Oh, and okay. that that is very rare in the Florida counties. Okay. And so that's why Sumter is a very, they're, they're right now at 74,000 of 105,000 registered voters. Got so it. that's why Sumter County is going to show you a very clear, with the early vote, a very clear picture of where they're going to end up. Right. Okay. One of the things that uh, will really uh, come to a head after the election, I'm not going to say after Tuesday because it isn't absolutely certain that we will know on Tuesday night, but uh, after the election, however many days it takes to count the votes is over, there's going to have to be um, a reevaluation of where the Republican Party is and what it stands for. Um, I think most of us, all of us, I imagine, agree that we need a strong center-right party in this country. Um, but, uh, but George, why don't you take a stab at this? Um, how do you see the coming argument playing out? Well, on the one side, there are those who will say that uh, the Trump message is fine. They need a better messenger. That's what losing uh, political movements usually say. And in that case, they will try to have the thinking person's Trumpism, which is an interesting oxymoron. <laughs> and they will, they will double down on things like Josh Hawley's 
advocacy of industrial policy and Marco Rubio's pretty much the same thing, common good capitalism, uh, in which case they won't present a, a very clear contrast with the, with the Democrats. The Democrats will do it better. And although it's almost impossible to destroy an American party, the Whigs managed to disappear, and I suppose the Republicans could get into similar parlous condition. Uh, or they could say, you know, the Republican Party did rather well from 1856 uh, into the 21st century by saying we're, we're here to conserve the Amer principles of the American founding, which is to say natural rights, uh, limited government, uh, and energetic but reasonable judiciary and all the rest, and, and offer the country an alternative to Democrats. Now, I, looking on the bright side, as I am disinclined to do, I do not ex expect the Democrats to go crazy, uh, which will partly tell us where the Republicans go. That is, Joe Biden knows that he was opposed by all the people to his left, that he beat them more handily than Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders. And if Biden doesn't remember this, Jill Biden will remind him of it. <laughs> and uh, so B Biden knows that uh, he got there on his own, really. And therefore, I do not expect him to go nuts. If they do uh, allow the progressive wing to take over, there's a cautionary tale. Let me describe it very briefly. 1964, I cast my first presidential vote for my man, Barry Goldwater, who uh, carried six states. Uh, and the Democrats produced such a landslide that they had when the Congress convened in 1965, there were 295 Democrats in the House and 68 Democratic senators. So for two years, they could do pretty much what they wanted. And they lunged far ahead of public opinion, absorbed a terrific drubbing in 1966, and Republicans won four of the next five presidential elections. So parties can be down and out. And I vividly remember after the 64 elections, people saying, well, the Republican Party's doomed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, no, the Republican Party uh, won the last third of the 20th century. So uh, if the yeah. Democrats go crazy, that'll tell you where the Republicans are going. Okay, let, let me probe that a little bit more, though, because... Um, the some of the sources of later Republican success, the, some of the seeds of that were already present in the Goldwater uh, campaign, and right. what the Republicans were able to do was to put it in a better package with Ronald Reagan and to uh, update it a bit. But um, and of course there was a certain backlash against the excesses of the Democratic Party, as you say, but. Are there any seeds that you see in the current Republican Party that can flower later in any sort of positive way? Well, they don't grow Ronald Reagan's on trees. And of course, Reagan began his ascent in 1966, just two years after the anti-Goldwater landslide. I don't see the talent there, but that just that's a reflection more on me than on the talent. I think that they're probably out there. I just don't see them yet. But I, I'm pretty sure that there are some very shrewd people who, some of whom have flirted, to say no more, have flirted with Trumpism and 
are going to be, I think, tough and intelligent enough to pull back after they see what happens. Let me give you something to watch on Tuesday night. Watch the first congressional district in South Carolina in the Charleston area. Republicans held that seat from 1981, after Mendel Rivers had retired, all the way until 2018, when they lost it to a Democrat, but who got le- won by less than one point, uh, one percentage point. Uh, that was a bad year. 2018 said, "Well, normality will be restored in 2020." Well, normality in 2020 is, I think, going to be. The, the Democrat holding that seat very comfortable this year. Uh, and he's running against a, a Republican who won her primary by saying, I'm more Trumpier than, I'm Trumpier than thou. Uh, so I, I, I think there are going to be all kinds of warnings uh, in, in the results about Tuesday night for those Republicans who are inclined to say, well, we just need to tweak Trumpism a bit. Damon, uh, Trumpier than thou could be the new motto of the Republican Party. Um, you know, for the first time since the party's founding in 1856, they did not produce a party platform in 2020. They simply said, whatever Donald Trump says, that's what we're for. Um, so do you, uh, how do you see this coming? People keep talking about there's going to be a great battle for the soul of the Republican Party. And Believe me, I want there to be a vibrant conservative party in the country, but uh, I don't know. I mean, you, you you look at the popularity of Q candidates and, and Trumpism, and you don't see, I don't know, do you see uh, green shoots somewhere? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I'm not a Republican, so, you know, I'm not, know. Gonna, I'm not definitely not going to give you the most encouraging line here. Um, my position is that um, the kind of decent conservatism that the people in this podcast espouse and that I once did when I considered myself a conservative, uh, probably I, I'm pretty convinced by this point, there is not a huge constituency uh, for that. Uh, in the electorate. I think that it floats around out there. I think this year, a lot of these people, if not all of them, are moving to Biden. Um, they, they could float back and attach themselves to uh, a more decent Republican if one manages to get the nomination, but that really is the key. How do you get the nomination? And I've said on this podcast before, this goes back way before Trump, all the way to, I think, Sarah Palin and a large, a large chunk of Republican voters saying, aha, I didn't realize it, but I like that. And then you had a huge a clown car, a crazy scrum show in the 2012 GOP primaries where a bunch of people who I at the time considered to be utterly unsuited to be president were competing with each other for several months to be the, the Palin of that cycle. And it turned out none of them caught enough fire and you ended up with Romney as the default and he went down. Now that they've had their Trump, um, I just, uh, you know, I think the main thing as, as some others have said in this very episode, um, I, I, you know, very briefly, I think that the main lines of debate are going to be between 
is this a policy thing? So we have to kind of shift in a protectionist direction, anti-immigration, uh, you know, that kind of a direction on policy. And it doesn't really matter the stylistic presentation of it, or is it largely going to be about the Trumpiness of it, the, the, uh, the rude, obnoxious, triggering the libs style of Trump, maybe even more effectively than Trump. I, I mean, I, I've, I wrote a column a year ago predicting that Tucker Carlson could be the nominee in 2024 if he wants it. Um, it might not be him. As, as others said, maybe it'll be Don Jr. who does it. He certainly is trying when he speaks. You see him kind of practicing his growl. He speaks really fast and angry, loud. Um, a bunch of people are going to try that. I don't see Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton succeeding on that because neither of them have any uh, – real personality or charisma at all. But those, I think, are the main fault lines. And really, none of them are a new Romney uh, or a new even even I mean, Rubio will be try to blend, you know, the kind of old style, more traditional conservatism with some, you know, Trumpy uh, populist notes. But uh, I, I don't know if he has what it would take to, to pull that together either. So yeah, that's my my uh, rather uh, dour <laughs> outlook on the question. <laughs> JVL, uh, um, considering what you've said and written about the base, um, is you know what happens if the Republican Party does crash and burn? I mean, it seems impossible to imagine that a conservative Reaganite party would take its place because it would have to earn support from the people who like Trump and Palin and Tucker Carlson and Rush Limbaugh and all of that crew, right? Yeah. And that, well, there are a bunch of things to consider. The first of which is, again, some very large percentage of these Republicans are not going to recognize that they were defeated. They hmm. will insist that the election was stolen and it was rigged and it was the absentee ballots or that was yeah. the Mexican immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. The next thing is we are going to have a former president of the United States who does not retire to your Belinda. Right. I mean, Donald Trump is going to remain incredibly active. He'll be on Twitter every day. He will be calling into all of the shows on Fox and ranting and raving. He, for all we know, will continue holding rallies. Right. This is and this is uncharted territory. We have not seen that uh, in what, 100 years, maybe, maybe longer, having a, an ex-president who seeks to remain a physical and vibrant force within the party on a day to day basis. That's that's totally new. But the other thing I would say in all of this is that I think the future is is actually California. We are, if you pull back far enough, it already looks like we're under one party rule nationally. Uh, over the last 30 years, Republicans have won a plurality in the presidential election exactly once. That is a minority party. It's not, it's just simply not the majority party. You know, you cannot be like, they, they, they've They've been over over the 50% mark exactly once in 30 years, even. And that says to me that this is a party which is in terminal decline. And one of the things you look, when you look around to different states that are one-party states, the minority party is not a reasonable, rational party. Once they are divorced from actually having any governing responsibility, they just go insane. This is what happened to the California Republican Party after they hollowed out after Pete Wilson. And 
I think that what that's basically what we're heading towards. The Republican Party is going to be a rump party that is dominant in certain regional sections, uh, but that nationally has no political responsibility and so therefore has no real tethering to policy outcomes. What they can offer to their adherents are psychic pay, payoffs for things they say and poses they strike. And that is a recipe for becoming, again, even more and more of a minority party as things go on. And uh, I, I don't know. It does not look like California has been particularly well governed, having been a one party state now for 30 years. And I, you know, again, maybe we'll get lucky nationally, but I, I kind of doubt it. We never get lucky. Um, what about God takes care of fools, drunks, and the United <laughs> States of America? If only. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this this is a, a, a transition to something else that I wanted to raise with you, JVL, because you wrote this week about the Electoral College. And one of the things that has been projected, if there is a huge Democratic victory, that the that the Democrats will engage in some norm smashing of their own, that they will eliminate the filibuster, that they will abolish the Electoral College, and that they will pack the Supreme Court. I don't know if we can get to all of those right with our remaining time, but let's let's talk about the Electoral College for a minute. Because if, as you say, JVL, the um, Republican Party could be shrink down and become insignificant on the national stage, then one of the arguments for maintaining the Electoral College seems to have less weight, right? Because you argue that one of the things it does is it keeps things stable by giving advantages to the two major parties. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't envision the Democrats doing any of those things that are on the progressive list wish wish list, which is turning Puerto Rico into a state, abolishing the Electoral College, putting 15 Supreme Court justices, because the the simple fact of the matter is that Joe Biden will either have a narrow Senate majority or he will not. If, even if he does have a narrow Senate majority, Joe Manchin is not signing off on all of these things. And also, Mark he Kelly, Hickenlooper, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he has the perfect excuse of, hey, we have a global pandemic raging, which has killed a quarter of a, mil- a million Americans so far. And we're going to spend all of our political capital on that. And you know what? That's mm-hmm. a totally sensible thing to do. This, you know, the first two years of the administration, when which is when everybody swings for the fences, uh, Biden has an automatic excuse as to why there is no reason for him to pursue any of the things on the progressive wish list. And mm-hmm. so, in that sense, I think he's very lucky politically. Yeah, um, uh, Bill, you have lots of ties in. Democrat circles, Democratic circles. Why did I say Democrat? I sound like Ted Cruz. Gosh, Rush Limbaugh right here on the program. <laughs> Goodness, um, Bill, uh, do you do you get the feeling that there's going to be tremendous enthusiasm, say, for abolishing electoral college, which, by the way, would require constitutional amendments? Kind of tough, uh, but uh, the other things as well. What do you what do you sense? Well, I can tell you this pretty much for sure, and that is when it comes to putative President Biden himself, he is distinctly unenthusiastic about the prospect of doing any of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has told close associates, I am informed, uh, that he wants to do his best to lead off with pieces of legislation that in principle could command bipartisan support. 
uh, if, uh, in particular, Mitch McConnell is willing to abandon his 2009 tactics and do, do business with him. Uh, Biden does not want to abolish the filibuster. Uh, he does not want to expand the Supreme Court. Uh, and as for abolishing the Electoral College, that is a process that would take years in the best of all circumstances. Uh, he wants to begin by dealing with the problems that are front and center for the American people, uh, the economy, uh, the pandemic. Uh, and he would also like to put on the table pretty early, as I understand it, a, uh, an infrastructure bill. Uh, that would redeem that topic from being a weekly joke and actually do it. Uh, and the only circumstance under which he would enter into a process that led to the abolition of the filibuster would be a McConnell stonewall. Uh, if, if McConnell decides that the future of the Republican Party and its prospects for a rebound depend upon blocking the entirety of the Biden agenda. I do not think a President Biden would allow that to stand. Uh, he would tell the country after two or three months of doing his best to negotiate with Mitch McConnell that he now faces a choice that he very much wanted to avoid between abolishing the filibuster on the one hand and, uh, and, and seeing the demise of his program on the other, and that our problems are too urgent to allow a, an opposition strategy of just saying no to succeed. The price is too high, and so he will reluctantly do what he opposed throughout his career in the Senate. Uh, so. In my opinion, and I've said this before, starting on election night, the single most important person in the United States is not Joe Biden, and it's not Donald Trump. It's Mitch McConnell. He literally holds the future of the republic in his hands. And if he stands four square for the principle that every ballot should be counted and the results should be respected, that will put us on one track. If he throws, if he throws in with the forces uh, that want to try to obstruct what I suspect will be the clear will of the American people, we're on a very different track and a much worse one. And similarly, starting on January 20th, will he decide that the problems of the country are too urgent? Uh, and if if Mr. if President Biden is willing to have that bourbon with him that uh, President Obama famously declined, that it was time, it's time not only for a change of tone, but a change of course, then the country has a chance. Uh, but we will be plunged into political controversy and strife and one term government, rather in and one party government, if he decides to oppose everything starting on day one. It's his call. Damon, you wanted to get in on this. Yeah, just a quick point that uh, to, to build on Bill's point. Um, I think also just purely in political terms, um, 
it, it's very smart for Biden to try to break a very bad pattern for the Democrats, which is Bill Clinton wins the presidency, tries to do health care uh, reform. It fails, but nonetheless, the Republicans take control of the House for the first time in 40 years with Newt Gingrich. Then under uh, Obama, he comes out, tries to do health care reform, does it, passes it with no Republican support at all. And the result is the biggest switch of seats to the right in many more decades even than that. Uh, and by by margins that that dwarf what we saw in 2018. So it would. How about the Democrat comes out of the gate and tries to do exactly what Bill suggests? Tries to to govern from the center. Tries to get some Republican support. And if he can do it, it might actually succeed in not giving him a two-year presidency. He actually can succeed in continuing to govern rather than facing this tidal wave of opposition that rises up in response to the attempt to enact a progressive reform right out of the gate. Now, the the, the addendum to that, uh, even more briefly, is that that uh, in and of itself explains exactly why McConnell is going to be maximally likely to not play ball because that's the strategy is make the first two years uh, really ugly and hope you can parlay it into a big win at the midterms. And then it's then then we're off to the next presidential race and on we go. OK, um, George, um, some young progressives of my acquaintance uh, are hostile to the filibuster uh, because they believe that it is undemocratic, which of course it is. Um, but conservatives are put on this earth to explain that majoritarianism does not equal, it's not the only kind of legitimacy. So why don't you give a couple minutes on your views on the filibuster and why it should not be eliminated for good, the sake of good government? Well, the filibuster uh, gives us something more subtle and sophisticated than government by adding machine. If you simply tally the numbers, you try to measure intensity as well as numbers, because that matters in politics. The filibuster uh, should, in a normal political climate, encourage compromise, because it will be an inconvenience to have both the people waging the filibuster and those people having it waged against them, that inconvenience is the mother of compromise or can be. It's a little bit analogous to a strike in labor relations. It's a test of two sides' pain thresholds, and you try and uh, reach an accommodation. There is an alternative to keeping the filibuster or abolishing the filibuster, and that is to going back and reconsidering what a very great uh, Democrat, Mike Mansfield, did in the early 1970s when he said, we're going to change the rules so that when you announce a filibuster, we can, the Senate can put aside the filibuster bill and go on to other business. If they change that, if the Senate couldn't go on to other business, and if people had to hold the floor and uh, get back to being a serious inconvenience to one another, that, it seems to me, would be a, a compromise possible in the filibuster. But the, basically, there are senators. Bernie Sanders is one of them, by the way. He does not want to get rid of the filibuster because the filibuster will inevitably 
if abolished, turned the Senate into a rather glorified House of Representatives. And institutional vanity would be the friend of good government here. Or I can quote a former senator who said about the filibuster in 2005, arguing that it should be kept. It does not mean I get my way. It means you may have to compromise. You may have to see my side of the argument. This is what it is about, engendering compromise and moderation, unquote. That was Senator Joe Biden. All right. Um, let us now turn to our final segment where we highlight or lowlight something from uh, that we've been reading or noticing. Bill, did you want to get in on that other point about the filibuster before we move on? Just just very quickly. Sure. Uh, the the theory of the uh, of the filibuster as a compromise forcer is the strongest argument in its favor. It runs up against an inconvenient fact Namely, that in recent American politics, it has not done that. It has served rather as a vehicle for uh, doing nothing, creating gridlock. Now, I'm not necessarily arguing in favor of getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, but if we are now in an era of politics where one party or the other would rather have nothing happen than reach a reasonable accommodation, then the filibuster takes on an entirely different function and I think a, di a different cast and the defenders of the filibuster will have to come up with a more persuasive reason for retaining it. Fair enough. Um, though it might be different if, as George suggests, um, they, they cannot do other business and they actually have to hold the floor, uh, you know, ho however long. All right. Um, JVL, your final reflections this week. I have a, a highlight and low light, which I would like to bring up only as a way of tossing them to, to George for reaction. The first is a highlight, which is brand new news that happened while we were taping. Tony LaRusso was announced as the manager of the Chicago White Sox. And the low light was Blake Snell being pulled in the sixth inning of game six of the World Series with a pitch count in the 70s, having thrown thus far a two hitter. I am desperate to know what George F. Will thinks of both of these things. Well, since I'm 79 and he's a sprightly, what, 77, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to criticize his age. Uh, Tony Russo is one of my good friends. He's on my speed dial. When the White Sox announced they were firing his manager, their manager, I immediately texted Tony and said, go manage this team because it's young, talented, and therefore doesn't know how to play baseball yet. Uh, and... Uh, he began his managing career with Jerry Reinsdorf at the White Sox in the early 80s. He is about one season's worth of wins, maybe two seasons, away from becoming the second winningest manager that is overtaking John McGraw. Uh, no one will ever catch uh, Connie Mack because he owned the team and couldn't fire himself. Uh, but uh, I'm, all, I'm all in favor of this. Uh, Snell, that's one of the great, uh, great, events of 2020. It's a, there are few enough of them in 2020. But what happened was uh, Snell was doing a very good Sandy Koufax imitation, cruising through the lineup, and he gave up his third hit, a, a soft, almost broken bat single, and the Tampa Bay manager pulled him with the 
with uh, uh, Mookie Betts, the next batter. He Snell had struck out Mookie Betts twice, and Mookie Betts had batted 200 this year, just 200 against left-handers. Uh, Tampa did this because they are slaves to their algorithms and to their data and their analytics, which is what baseball people rather grandly call information. Uh, and, and instead of uh, listening to, looking at it, watching it, what he saw with his eyes and listening to his gut, they were slaves to technology, as it were. Uh, so I, I think this was a great blow for human beings when, uh, when it backfired. All right, I'm going to take the moderator's uh, uh, prerogative here and and tell a baseball story um, because George mentioned Sandy Koufax, a, a great pitcher, actually a great Jewish pitcher, and it reminds me of the story. He parent one year he he was supposed to pitch in the World Series and didn't because it fell on Yom Kippur, um, and um, and but but my story is more recent. It's uh, when uh, there was a great Jewish fan of baseball whose uh, team was finally, after many years, in the World Series, and they were scheduled to play on Yom Kippur. And the man was just so distraught, and he went to see his rabbi, and he said, "Look, Rabbi, I'm so torn. I've been supporting this team for forty years, and they're finally in the World Series, and it falls on Yom Kippur. I'm just, I just don't know what to do." And the rabbi said. Sam, Sam, come on. Haven't you heard of TiVo? And the man said, oh, Rabbi, you TiVo the service for me? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right. Uh, Damon Linker, what do you have for us? Uh, well, this happened just before we uh, went on the air. So this is another uh, hot news flash. Um, Glenn Greenwald, who uh, is uh, probably not very well admired by many people on this podcast, but of course, he's a very prominent journalist, uh, has uh, had a big hand in major stories on national security over the last decade or so. He has resigned from The Intercept, the website that he co-founded with the uh, sub-headline on his statement saying, the same trends of repression, censorship, and ideological homogeneity plaguing the national press generally have engulfed the media outlet I co-founded, culminating in censorship of my own articles. And so he has now moved over to Substack, which is where uh, Andrew Sullivan now publishes his old blog, and uh, Matt Taibbi, who's another kind of um, obstreperous, left-leaning uh, bad boy journalist who also publishes there now. So, the, you know, in the, in the worlds of, of political journalism, uh, that's a bit of an earthquake uh, and something that we'll be processing and talking about, I think, in the coming days. Damon, how can you hurt me like this? <laughs> Why did I steal something from you? You, you, you're talking about the other notable journalists on Substack, and you do not mention The Bulwark? I'm sorry, I didn't even realize. Is The Bulwark officially uh, published? I didn't even realize this, to be perfectly honest. I, I go to The Bulwark all the time, but like I don't notice URLs and so forth. I'm purely focused on the personalities. Of course, The Bulwark is also published on Substack. We're all great 
Charlie. It's it's not. Mona, will you do the plug for me? Because the people will listen to you. You know what? It's just so funny that you brought this up because for my last item, which we'll get to in a minute, I'm I'm going to do a plug about the bulwark. And it wasn't even planned and nobody asked me to do it. So that's funny. But I'm I'm gonna hold off until we have heard from Bill Galston. Well, uh, I have a dream. Either late on election night or early on election morning, we will learn that the state of Strom Thurmond and John C. Calhoun is represented by two African-Americans, one of each party Mm. in the U.S. Senate. Wouldn't that be a story? It would. (laughs) That would be something. Uh, Okay, George, did you have a final item? Well, only the the fact that I think politics ought to add to the public stock of harmless pleasure. And Mr. Trump did this in Arizona the other day when he was said addressing suburban women, of whom there are a lot in uh, Maricopa County. He said, uh, I've done a lot for you, suburban women. I've opened the state, which, of course, he has neither power nor any other means of doing, but said, I've opened the state, thereby enabling your husbands to go back to work. And I think, <laughs> I think the women picked up their briefcases and tried to smack him with it. And it was a great, great moment in 2020 politics. Yes. Oh, yes. Also equaled by his um, threat that people like Cory Booker would be coming to the suburbs as if that's something to worry about. Um, all right. Uh, my item, well, I was uh, struck by a statement that was issued this week by a group calling itself Scholars and Writers for America. Uh, and here's here's the statement they put their names to. Given his astonishing success in his first term, we believe that Donald Trump is the candidate most likely to foster the promise and prosperity of America. We urge you to support him as we do. And a couple dozen names are attached. And um, look, some of these people are from places like Hillsdale College and the Claremont Institute and the Hudson Institute, places uh, that were created precisely because uh, the mainstream academic and literary institutions at the time that they were founded were kind of hostile to conservative voices. And that is uh, why they felt uh, that they needed to form other organizations. And that is part of the American spirit. You know, you don't just curse the Ford Foundation or the New Yorker, you form your own institutions. And that brings me to the bulwark. In the age of Trump, there is, has already been, and there will be more, of a sorting uh, among writers and thinkers. Um, and a number of people were no longer comfortable with the publications and the think tanks that they were associated with and founded new institutions. And the bulwark was among the very first. And it has been a beacon of sanity and cogent analysis um, for almost uh, two years now. And I want to just say, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when this came up with JBL, that sometimes, you know, we're asked to do pitches for membership and no one asked me to do this. I, this is completely sui sponte, but I just wanted to note my gratitude to Sarah Longwell, Bill Crystal, Charlie Sykes, Jonathan Last, my own son, Benjamin Parker, 
and the others who helped create this oasis. And it is not going away after the election. Some people have written to me and asked, uh, neither is this podcast. We have a continuing mission to present good faith arguments and civil dialogue, and we hope that you will continue to be there with us. And so we thank you. JBL, did you want to add anything? Well, if people would like to donate and join Bulwark Plus, which is what is on Substack, I did, I couldn't tell if Damon was trolling me by <laughs> I telling was me not. Was because the Bulwark is not published on Substack. The Bulwark is its own website, thebulwark.com. However, we have a new product called Bulwark Plus, which is not actually that new. It's now like six weeks old, Damon. <laughs> well, and, uh, I am behind the curve, but uh, but now I feel less bad. <laughs> A little bit. So I would, I would really, if you love Beg to Differ, please come to to Bulwark Plus and join and subscribe with us. It's, uh, it's really great. You get a couple other secret niche podcasts that we hide away only for for people who donate to Bulwark Plus, as as well as both my newsletter and Charlie Sykes's morning newsletter every day, which so, are uh, not to be missed. And also, we do these evening uh, get-togethers uh, after debates, and uh, we will be getting together after on election night. So yeah. if people, we're doing one tonight to actually Thursday yes. night. We're doing one with uh, well, David. But this won't come out till tomorrow. Sorry. So that's oh, too bad. Every right, you missed right, it. Right, it was right. an amazing yeah, show. It was great. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to George. Thanks to JBL. Thank uh, my normal uh, colleagues and uh, everybody take a deep breath. Don't do what I do and constantly check polling data. Just relax, pour yourself a drink, and we'll be back here next week, like every week. 